Well, good morning. It is uh, a pleasure to be back. Uh, it's, um, it's, I know it's the summer, and, and we are all uh, running around, uh, or at least my family certainly is, uh, running around w- with many things. And so uh, it's just good to be with God's people this morning and be with you as one of our supporting churches. Have you ever been present when history happened? Uh, I don't mean that you watched it on TV. Uh, I mean that you were present when something that changed the world happened. Uh, I guess it depends on what I mean by world changing. Uh, You know, uh, for our family, certainly, uh, it was when Russia invaded Crimea. Uh, which was uh, not too far from us, and we were working with many Muslim villages just outside of Crimea in 2014. What, what I don't mean is, you know, the latest gadget or the latest performer. And yet, if we think about even Russia invading Crimea or something like this, we have to wonder, has it really changed the world? Invasions, wars, Coops, and now we all know, uh, pandemics, uh, they have come and gone for thousands of years. And most of them have not even made it into our history books. So what then would constitute a world-changing event if we set the bar at that level? It must be something that not only alters our interaction with the world, for such things come and go regularly, but rather it changes the core of our meaning and our existence. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, uh, verses 29 to 34. So if you have a Bible, open with me there. Uh, Why we find John 1, and uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, John is uh, before Acts and after Luke uh, in the New Testament, uh, second half of the Bible. Uh, let me give you a little bit of context in this passage. John 1, 29 to 34 comes uh, not long after the introduction to the Gospel of John, where John has introduced Jesus uh, called the Word, who is God become man in bringing salvation to humanity. More than this, John the Baptist has been sent, commissioned by God to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, John didn't know exactly who the Messiah was, but he knew he was coming, And it was John's job to point toward him. In other words, it was John's job to announce an event that would eternally change human existence. Let's read John 1, 29-34. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen 
and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. We're going to look at our passage in three parts today. First, the mission of the Lamb. Secondly, the identity of the Lamb. And third, the witness of the Lamb. Let's begin with verse 29, uh, which uh, begins the Lamb's mission. And in verse 29, we have Jesus approaching John, and John is presumably still baptizing. Uh, now, it's, it, it's not too important for the meaning in terms of how we understand these words, but it seems like John has actually already baptized Jesus at this point. It's not that he's being baptized. It's a later event, actually, after Jesus' baptism. And here John speaks of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's unpack this phrase. Uh, first, we have the phrase, Lamb of God. Uh, now, it's difficult to know exactly how much John as a man understands here. Did John know that Jesus was going to suffer? Well, Later on in Matthew chapter 11, John actually struggles with the fact that he's been put in jail. And so he, he, John doesn't understand how it all fits together right away. And does John know that Jesus is going to suffer? Well, it seems here what we have is a kind of prophetic word from John. It, it's likely that uh, the lamb label uh, is an intentional allusion to at least two things. One, it's an allusion to Isaiah 53, uh, where it describes and discusses a, a God's servant who would suffer for the sins of Israel in order to redeem Israel. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 7, says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And actually, Isaiah 53, this chapter about the servant is quoted repeatedly by John. However, it's also likely that there's an allusion here to the Passover lamb, uh, I saw the artwork up here, the, the Passover lamb, who is this figure of deliverance and dedication. It was by sacrificing this lamb and spreading its blood on the doors that Israel was delivered from judgment in Egypt and was brought out and, and, and made God's people. Now, in this prophetic word by John, we receive John's first public words that we have about Jesus. Jesus' mission could be expressed as a lamb's mission in which the lamb was killed in order to effect forgiveness of sin and deliverance for God's people. Or, or more specifically, this lamb would take sins, this dying lamb identity would be the means not just of forgiving Israel's sin, but the world's sin would be removed. 
to define sin, uh, I, I can't do it here because I'm not at our church, but I don't know what children's program you've been using, but our children in the children's program at our church have been uh, studying through God's word. And, and, and this is the definition of sin that, that it gives uh, in the program. I think it's helpful. Uh, sin is any word, deed, or thought that is against God and his will. Our sin is against God. It's an affront to his honor and, and a rebellion against him. Whether it be our, our subtle manipulating of conversations to make them about us, fleeting or not so fleeting lustful glances, uh, the continual effort to maintain an image online or in person so as to receive the praise of others, the slow destruction of our family through the idolization of, of work and money, the convenience of, of permissive parenting, uh, or anxiety that's really just distrust toward God. There are a million kinds of sin, and they are all against God. And Christ, in dying like a lamb, came to take them all. Now, now, sin sometimes seems like an old-fashioned word. It's not common, uh, common speech in our society. But the increasing tendency in our society to, uh, whatever the lifestyle, not only have to tolerate all things, but actually to affirm all the different ways that people think of living shows us that actually our, our consciences are not well. And we don't like having our darkness exposed. Deep down, we know there's something wrong. And there's sin. And that's why we need a Savior. This prophetic word uh, could have had different names of Jesus, if you think about it. Messiah, Lord, Son of Man, the list could go on. And yet here we have it, the Lamb. Do you know Jesus as a lamb? Is his death a real and, and beautiful reality to you? Do you share the excitement that John does when, when he actually says, Behold. John does not say, Behold the friend or, or behold the teacher, but behold the lamb. Those things would be true, but the dying lamb is at the very center of Jesus' identity. Or put another way, Jesus' sacrificial death is at the center of God's heart and actions towards you. And not just toward Israel, but really towards the world. There's no people, language, subculture for which the Lamb did not come. It's impossible to think of a subculture or ethnic group that Christ did not bear sin for. This is the great and world-changing event. And so every one of us, as we read these words today, we have to ask ourselves, do I know this Lamb? Not do I go to church, not am I a social or economic conservative, uh, but do I have a real personal knowledge of Christ's death for my sin? Uh, there's another part to Jesus' mission, the Lamb's mission in this passage, and that's in verse uh, 33, where it says that 
uh, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has come to baptize with the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Uh, Well, John says in verse 33 that he had come to do this. So so there's actually a contrast between John's water baptism and Jesus' spirit baptism. And and yet we're Baptists and we baptize with water. So so what's what's going on here? Um, It's fairly simple. Uh, The baptism of John was a preparatory baptism marked by repentance in preparation for the coming of Christ, Jesus. And after Jesus had died and rose, the Spirit was then given to Jesus and and remained on him, as it says here. And and water baptism became part of a complete package uh, of conversion where a person repents, believes, uh, and is baptized and receives the Spirit. For example, uh, in Acts uh, 2.38, it says this, And Peter said to them, this is uh, Peter preaching to the crowds, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, water baptism becomes part of conversion and, and spirit baptism, but that still doesn't explain actually what spirit baptism is. When Jesus was exalted to the Father, after his resurrection, he then poured out the Spirit on his followers. Well, what does the Spirit do? Spirit baptism is the remaking of a person's heart and affections in love for God and obedience to him by the Spirit. Uh, we read uh, earlier, or it was read in the service, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. Uh, or sorry, uh, a longer passage, but I, w- I want to reread verses 26 to 28 says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It shows the heart of the promise. It's an Old Testament promise for the people of God that that God would remake their hearts into hearts that are utterly God's and and growing more and more so in obedience to him. This Jesus doesn't just become a lamb to free from the punishment of sin. He also sends the Spirit to fundamentally change our hearts and to free us from the power of sin. And this is why Christianity, this lamb and spirit-sending identity, is not about greater church attendance, more faithful service of the church, or a moral living. It is about a conscious and felt forgiveness because of Christ's death on the cross for us and a new lived reality where because Jesus sent the Spirit, we are not slaves to sin anymore. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Morality, well, it's really just going to end in judgment and slavery. Conservatism, the same place, but Jesus Christ is life. That's the mission of the Lamb. 
And having discussed the mission of the Lamb, we, we now want to focus on the identity of the Lamb. Uh, there are several descriptions of Jesus' identity in this passage, but, but the first one, or the first thing we should pay attention to, is probably just that little phrase, of God, the Lamb of God. That phrase clarifies. How? Because it shows Jesus' saving death and the gift of the Spirit are of expressions of God the Father toward us. God the Father sent the Lamb to accomplish His purposes in your and my life, among His people. But we also have here other very significant terms. In verse 34, it says that Jesus is the Son of God. That, that is the testimony of John. That's what it says in verse 34. To be sure, when, we, when John gave this testimony, remember, he hadn't been beheaded yet. And Jesus had neither died nor risen. And he hadn't even gone to jail yet, likely. So we probably shouldn't think that John recognizes that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity yet. But John the Baptist, he may not know it, but, but writing more than 50 years after the resurrection, the Apostle John knows Jesus was God's son in, in a very different way. He, yes, Jesus was the, the messianic son of God the, in the way that God had said to David in 2 Samuel 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. A kind of royal adoption. But Jesus was God's son in, in a much greater way. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh, this Word Jesus, the Eternal Son, the, the Eternal One who is with God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the, the spectacular glory of God, as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son who is God Himself, that is the Lamb's identity. Jesus also says regarding the Lamb that the one who comes behind me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, people at that time may have been tempted to think of John uh, as greater than Jesus, actually. Chronologically, and in terms of ministry and birth, John came before, and so that was kind of intuitive for them. And John says, no, that's not the case. Instead, he says, no, Jesus is greater. He's, he's greater in rank. And, and again, John has a kind of partial knowledge of this, but the Gospel of John will fill this out. What does that mean, actually, that Jesus came before John? In John 8, there's a controversy with the Jewish leadership. Jesus claims that, that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. The Jews kind of balk at this, asking if Jesus is older than Abraham. And Jesus responds by saying, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claims to be before Abraham, and his use of that title, I am, is really him just claiming to be God, Yahweh, the, the God of the Old Testament. And, and still greater, if you just read John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. 
The simple truth that Jesus is God means that you and I actually have to strive to think of Jesus rightly. And that's actually a battle. Negatively, and perhaps well-intentioned, sometimes we come up with ideas about Jesus or parallels with him to try to explain who he is, but, but they, they fall grievously short. For which superhero could we ever say that, that they are co-eternal with the Father? For which superhero could we ever say that all that exists was, was made through them and for their glory? Well, none, of course. And yet all that has ever existed has been made for Jesus Christ and continues to exist because Jesus Christ wills it to continue to exist. And its appointed end, despite all the turns of history, is the glory of Jesus Christ. In Colossians, uh, Paul says these words. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yes, Jesus is great. But what, but what practical difference does that make? Well, much in every way. Fear and anxiety flee when we see clearly the glory of Jesus Christ. The pleasures of lust pale before the pleasures of knowing the glorious Jesus Christ. The allure of clothes, video games, or stuff cannot touch the allure of Jesus Christ. Many of our spiritual problems are simply symptoms of the fact that, that our God is too small. Conversely, the deepest joys of human existence lie in nothing other than in the appreciation of the greatness of Jesus Christ. What is our, our practical relationship to the wondrous and exalted Lord? Having examined the mission of the Lamb, the identity of the Lamb, uh, we now turn to the witness of the Lamb. In context, of course, the witness is John. Um, but, but we can easily miss something here, actually. If you look in verse 33, John says this. Uh, he says, the one who sent him. And in context, that's, it's obviously God. Uh, and, and think about that just for a moment. God sent John so that Jesus the Lamb might be more clearly displayed to people. And John does this when he actually says, behold, he's calling attention to Jesus. In fact, if we step back and ask, why did God likely include this passage in Scripture? The fairly obvious answer is that he wants to call his, our attention to his Son. 
God's intention as we look at this scripture is that, that we perceive and acknowledge the significance of Jesus. It's not rocket science. Yeah, advertisers put ads on YouTube because they want you to buy stuff. And God writes scripture like this so that we would see who Jesus Christ is. The, the end of John's gospel says as much. John 20 verse 31 says this. But these are written, what John has written in his gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And actually the same basic idea is contained in the descent of the Spirit. When it descends like a dove on Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, John had seen this, that, that the Spirit had come down in this way. And, and actually, if you read verse 33 again, God had said to him, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. God had clearly told John that something like this was going to happen and that this marker would show God's Messiah. That, that wouldn't have been a great surprise. God's Messiah in the Old Testament in various places is marked by having the Holy Spirit, for example. In Isaiah 61.1 it says, uh, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Uh, but, so this was a common marker, but, but again, we just need to think about the basic logic here. God has orchestrated this day to display his Lamb to John and others, and now John cries out to whoever might hear, Behold, look, pay attention to the Lamb of God. John's point here is clear. It's actually to testify to the Lamb. To witness or testify simply means to confirm or attest on the basis of experience. And that's exactly what John has been sent for. If you read verses 22 and 23 of John 1, it says... Uh, some people from Jerusalem are kind of quizzing, John, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So, so John knows that, that his whole life and point of ministry is really about pointing towards Jesus Christ. This witness that John bears is actually part of a symphony of witnesses in the Gospel of John. In John 3.11, Jesus verbally bears witness about himself. In John 5.36, Jesus' works are said to witness to who he is and his divine origin. In John 5.39, it is said that the Scriptures witness to Jesus and we ought to see him there. In John 8.18, it says that the Father who sent Jesus testifies about him. And then Jesus, in John 15.16, says that in the future, in, in the age of the church right now, the Spirit will testify about him. Do you see the theme? In every way, we are urged to believe in Jesus Christ. Indeed, over and against Pontius Pilate, who during Jesus' trial will kind of scoff and say, 
What is truth? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we live in a world, actually, that often scoffs what is truth. Each commercial presents a different story to live by. So long as it's not ultimate, you can do whatever you want. You do you. But Jesus does not play this game. Very simply, these words of witness are meant to tell us that the truth is on the side of Jesus Christ. So, I, I, I didn't know your kids were all going to be here this morning, uh, but it's that much more fitting. So, kids, your parents are not the ultimate authority. You are, you are meant to obey your parents, but they can be wrong. So, so you shouldn't believe in Jesus just because your parents tell you to. You should believe in Jesus because God says that to you. Jesus is the lamb who died for all of us. Jesus loves me, this I know, not because my parents tell me so, but because the Bible tells me so. Visitor, uh, today, uh, this text brings you face to face with the claims of Christ. Uh, what are you doing practically right now with Jesus Christ? If not to Jesus Christ, who or what are you looking to and beholding as the thing that will define the trajectory of your life? Whose testimony are you believing about the meaning of your life? Through his word, God pleads with you and me today to believe his testimony and put our trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As you've all heard today, uh, our family is moving uh, into a new place, and, and it's a place that needs revitalization. It, it's a small church in, in a large area uh, that is uh, underserviced by the gospel. Uh, Quebec has about 1% evangelicals, and, and this is an area that, that's just needy. And, and if we go there, our hope is that more and more uh, that church, and really more and more this church, more and more any church, would be growing up into the death of Christ for sinners. That more and more it would be living a radically new life that pleases God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the church would be growing in confidence and in joy as it believes in Jesus Christ, the eternal and exalted Son of God. Some years ago, I sat with a young man in my apartment. Uh, I didn't know him well, and I was trying to understand, is he religious or is this man a Christian? Is he trusting in the Lamb and has he been remade by the Spirit or not? I began by asking questions about sin and repentance. He just gave me blank looks. I continued by speaking of faith in Christ and, and forgiveness of sin. And he just kind of said, like, I, I don't get you. 
I continued uh, to try to understand this man's spiritual state for, for almost a half hour, kind of approaching salvation and, and faith with kind of any biblical metaphor I could use. Nothing. Then all at once he says, do you mean when I asked Jesus into my heart? I actually really didn't know quite what to say at that moment. Uh, although sometimes people do present the message of Christ's death for us and, and his powerful change in our lives in this way, it's, uh, especially with kids, it's clear that this young man understood none of those things, but somehow thought he was a Christian. As far as I could tell, although raised in church, he had never really understood and hoped in the slain lamb. He had never been thrilled by, by the felt release from slavery that comes by the Holy Spirit's work in a believer's life. He, he had never really beheld Jesus Christ with wonder. He never clearly believed the truth of the gospel. And, and may that not be true of us. And I just want to close by praying for us that, that we would be people who do behold, people who do know the death of Christ, and people who are changed by his spirit. Let's pray together. Lord God, uh, we thank you for the death of Christ. We thank you that you sent your son, that our salvation is complete that there is nothing, less for, nothing left for us to add or earn and that we know that we can be welcomed home as sons and daughters because Christ died for our sins. That, that the full justice that was due us was paid on him and now we know your favor. And God, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we might live in new ways that glorify you not stuck in sin forever, God, but you, uh, by your grace, change us. We thank you for these things, God. Please work them more and more among us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.